0: Welcome back to another episode of the Cernig podcast today. Very, very, very special guest. I'm super excited to have Mr. Joe Poznansky on. I'll say again because Joe, you joined uh me and my buddies on uh one of my other podcasts, two jocks in the schlub uh, way back in uh, I want to say 2021 now. It's 2023. It's crazy to to think that. But uh, for those who don't know, let me just do a quick rundown, Joe, and then I'll let you uh I'll let you do the talking because that's what people are here for. But uh, in case you don't know, um, Joe has his own uh, Substack. It's called Joe Blogs. Please visit joepoznansky.substack.com. Formerly, he wrote for Sports Illustrated, the Kansas City City Star, The Athletic, among many other publications. He is the co-host of the podcast, my favorite podcast with Michael uh, Schur, co-creator of Parks and Rec, The Good Place, among other shows that you might be familiar with. Joe is also the author of Paterno, the baseball 100, um, the soul of baseball, a road trip through Buck O'Neill's America and his new book, why we love baseball is due out in the fall of 2023. Did I get that right, Joe? You got it right. Yes. <laughs> I think I have a, a whole page here. I can just keep going with the accolades. <laughs> if you want, <laughs> we can just get into the questions. It's, it's up to you.
1: <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's, let's stop on the accolades immediately and, uh, and and get going to the questions. I love it.
0: All righty, awesome. Well, my first question is a heavy hitter. I'll warn you in advance, but you are a part of of Charlotte. I also live in Charlotte, uh, and you you spent a long time here before you moved away, and then then you came back uh, recently. The Charlotte Knights unveiled a new logo. I want to get your thoughts on that logo. How do you like it? Uh,
1: I like it a lot, actually. I, I don't know how many people can visualize the logo itself, but. Uh I like it a lot. I like the new colors. Uh I like the logo. Uh I like the, the the fact that Knights are are actively trying to to get better and improve and 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 bring in uh you know the the, the city. I, I think it's such a challenge uh to be a minor league baseball team. I mean, it's just such a um you know it's 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 always been tough to be a minor league baseball team. You you have only the tiniest amount of control over the players that you get. You have only the tiniest amount of control of how long those players stay with you. Uh, You have to play by whatever rules they decide to come up with. And, uh, and it's tough. Uh, it's, it's really tough to, to build a, a fan base and an audience. And, and uh, I think uh, the people there, uh, uh, many of whom I know uh, are doing a, a terrific job. And, you know, Charlotte is, Uh, a major league city obviously major league football major league you know the nba you got major league soccer now and uh and you know so it's tough to be the triple a baseball team in the middle of all of that but but i think they do a great job i really do
0: yeah overall i i love going to games there um i wasn't crazy. I, I, I guess, you know, I, I don't really care I, at the end of the day, what a logo looks like and everything, right. but <laughs> I think it is cool to have the alignment. It's got some of the same color schemes now as all the major league teams uh, that you mentioned. So I think that brings a little bit more familiarity uh, to, to everybody and maybe that'll help uh, draw some fans and everything. Cause it is a, a more affordable experience and you know still fun, even though, like you said, there's those challenges. Yeah,
1: look, it feels major league ish. I mean, it's a great stadium. It's it's right downtown. It's uh, it's a cool atmosphere. It really is, Uh, and I like that. I like that they've. I like cities that go with one color scheme for all of their teams. I love it that everything in Pittsburgh is black and gold. That just I think that's an incredibly cool thing. And Charlotte has this. I, I don't know that I love the Charlotte teal thing that they've got going but they but it's it's too much a part of the city now to 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 back off now and and so i like that they sort of jumped in with everybody else on the color scheme
0: Sure, sure. Yeah. I was thinking about Pittsburgh too. That's funny that you yeah. <laughs> mentioned that. So um not to embarrass you again with the accolades, but one of the things I'm most curious about in talking to you today is uh a little bit more about your journey into becoming a sports writer and you know how you got that start and where that love and that passion came from. Can you walk us through, you know, the, the early days, like what mm-hmm. what made you decide that you wanted to be a sports writer to start?
1: I you know, so much of what happened to me uh was pure luck and circumstance and and weird coincidences i mean i you know i i we moved to charlotte uh it's the first time i lived in charlotte we moved here when i was in high school and i was a i literally had no earthly idea what i wanted to do with my life i had no clue i went to uh to unc charlotte to study Uh, accounting that was going to be my original thing was I went as an accounting major, and and uh, I don't know if I told this story on the podcast last time, but um, but it's it's true. I i remember very vividly the day that I realized I wasn't going to be an accountant. I and I was I used to take the city bus, I said I lived at home and I used to take the city bus to college, and I was taking the city bus home, and we were driving by a uh like a business park and there were people outside and, you know, they were smoking and and talking. And, and I remember looking out the window and seeing all those people, specifically seeing the people themselves and thinking to myself, that's never going to be me. That, that is never, that, that is never going to be me standing out there, you know, holding a satchel and smoking and talking about numbers. That's just never going to be me. And coincidentally, that was the day I failed out of accounting. so it worked out really effectively um, and the timing was great. so i I went home and I had a typewriter uh, that that I that I had been given uh, as a gift by my mother uh, this electric typewriter and I' I bring it up because I specifically right now in my office right next to me I have uh, an electric typewriter that I that I love working on. Um, so I had an electric typewriter and I thought to myself, I'm going to send out a bunch of letters to a bunch of people across wide variety of, of jobs and, 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 uh, and options and just tell them, you know, and then I think the letters basically were like, hi, my name is Joe Posnanski. I'm a high school, I guess I was in, in uh, college then I'm a freshman in college, sophomore in college. And uh I literally have no idea what to do with my life. And your job seems cool. So that was literally what I did. And so I wrote to a bunch of people. I wrote to Bob Costas. Uh it's it's something that that we've uh laughed about since then. Um, but I wrote to a bunch of people, and one of the people I wrote to was the uh uh then sports editor of the Charlotte Observer, a guy by the name of Frank Barrows, who's no longer with us, and uh and I I found his name and address in the paper, I guess. And I sent uh sent him a, a note and and he called or he, I guess he called me. No, he he must have he wrote back and he said, um, hey, if, if you're interested in this, we we sometimes send out uh people to high school games to write about them for 20 bucks, 25 bucks. You know, we call them stringers and we send them out to different games, and if that interests you um, you know, we can, we can do that. And I flipped, I just flipped. And, and honestly, I loved sports. and uh, I did not know that I loved writing, but as soon as he said that, as soon as he made that offer, I just thought, wow, this, this, this might be what, what I want to do. And, and, uh, um, first time I went out to a high school game, I remember it vividly. It was North Mecklenburg, uh, uh, girls team. And uh and I remember going out there and uh I I remember I, w- I went with an actual reporter uh named D'Orlando Ledbetter and he kind of showed me how to keep score and how to how to get things down, how to go to talk to the coach afterwards for quotes and and uh I was just smitten. I just thought this is exactly what I want to do. And so that that's how it happened. I mean, it wasn't anything where I thought to myself, like, oh, this is something that I can do, want to do. I honestly, if if you had told me, I mean, the, sort of the way I'm a first generation American, and and uh, you know, I I grew up, my parents uh, were learning everything about America at the same time that I was, and I, if you had told me at the time, I just honestly didn't even think that was a, a profession being able to write about sports. I just didn't think that was a a possibility for somebody like me. And, uh, once I realized that it was, it was, uh, uh, it was life-changing for sure.
0: Yeah. I love that. And, um, I, especially, you know, the accounting piece is funny to hear because one of my favorite things in life is to hear you and Mike nerd out about baseball stats and analytics on the podcast. (laughs) So I don't think that was a totally wasted educational venture there. Um, but so, you know, I think a, a lot of people, um, you know, especially in the day of, of social media here, they see sports writers and they see people who have access to athletes and for lack of a better word, they may think it's easy to do uh, that type of work. But it seems like what what you said, you know, just even to get your foot in the door. And then I'm sure the the early years was. Um, you know, reps, you know, really, really uh, putting in the work, grinding it out, even to a certain extent, like, is that accurate? Is that what you would recommend to young aspiring sports writers to say, like, don't, don't try and, uh, you know, just land the biggest name, like, you know, work as hard as you can?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it was a lot different when I was younger, right? I mean, in those days, there was a pretty direct path, You would, you would start at a little paper and work up to a little bit bigger paper and a little bit bigger paper and sort of work your way up that way. It was fairly, it was a fairly, um, I wouldn't say it was a direct route, but it was a clear route. And it's a lot different now because there aren't, as you know, aren't newspapers anymore. I mean, there, there's so few exist and, and they have so few jobs and, and even newspapers that, that are in major cities don't necessarily cover the teams the way they used to. But yeah, for me, I think one of the things that I had to learn very, very quickly was that I needed to put every bit of my enthusiasm into every single story that I did. And I was always enthusiastic about, like, I would sit around, I, like, I when I first started at the Charlotte Observer as a full-time person, I was working as an agate clerk, which meant that I would be the one that would take results. People would call in track meets and and uh, and basketball games. And I would take the results. I would put together the standings for the newspaper. Um, so that was my job. And it, it had a, enough downtime that I would pre- write practice columns all the time, like constantly um, just write about, but it was always about big stuff. It was always about things that were in the news, you know, major league sports, big things that were happening. And every now and again I would get an opportunity to do you know, a big a big story. I, I remember while I was an agent clerk, I I wrote a story about how hard it was to win uh on the road in the NBA. Then and, and ended up talking to a bunch of uh NBA coaches and all of that. So so that kind of thing was always easy because it was like this is everything I could have dreamed. <laughs> um, but I, but I realized fairly quickly, I hope, um, that I needed to put the exact same enthusiasm into, you know, when I covered a local softball team or I covered a high school game or I covered a, uh, you know, a, a local golf tournament. I mean, like those were, I had that opportunity early. And, uh, at first I think it's just natural. You're young and you're just like, oh, you know, this is fine, but this is not what I want to do but two things one very often those were the very best stories that i would come across you know it's like i've been to uh 25 super bowls but but there're not that many stories at the super bowl you know it's cool that i've been to all those super bowls but there me and you know 500 of my closest friends right it's like everybody's out there writing about it and if i'm uh, meanwhile, at a, at a high school football game where something remarkable happens, I'm the only one there or one of very, very few. And, and, and there's a real opportunity. And I'd say many of the best stories that I've ever written, uh, were in those environments. So I think that was the thing that I had to understand and and had to learn, uh, was that you have to just every single story you do, you have to bring the same level of, of excitement, enthusiasm, curiosity. Uh, And I think that's the advice I give anybody. It's like, when you, when you are starting out uh, particularly, just bring it, you know, just don't, don't ever think you're above anything because, because we're not. And and very often you're going to find that the very best things that you write are the things that you didn't expect to be, uh,
0: you know, as as
1: cool uh, when you first started. Sure,
0: sure. So you have what I would consider a very loyal following. Um, there's a lot of uh, writers or, or just celebrities, anyone with a, a big social presence, uh, but not everybody gets, I would say, the the level of engagement that you get. Do you think that enthusiasm that you just talked about, like, does is that one of the keys to building an actual uh relationship with your audience
1: i think that's right i i do i think i think people sense your enthusiasm they sense here's you know look this is not i'm not saying anything new but I think everybody looks around and sees a lot of cynicism out there, uh, in not just in sports uh, across the board. And, and some of that cynicism is, is, you know, people, people like it, you know, sometimes it's that people want to, 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 to get that, cynical point of view they want to get you know the 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 big arguments they want to get the hot takes i mean th- th- there's no question that's not to say that there's anything wrong with any of that but there's so much of that out there and i think what what has maybe separated me a little bit as far as engagement is that i don't really get into much of that not to say that i'm never cynical or i'm never uh I never offer a hot take cuz I'm sure I do but I don't do that very much and and it's not I don't like cheap shots I don't like I don't like cynical uh perspectives like I really don't I I I tend to be pretty optimistic uh even even when you know optimism is not that easy to come by and and I think I think people not everybody but but a lot of people like that and a lot of people have really responded to that. So I don't have the biggest audience out there for for sure. Uh, but I would not trade my audience for anybody else's because I feel like I've got an audience that is not just incredibly loyal, but really smart and fun and funny. And they push me to be better uh just by a lot of them. I've got I you know my my dad has told me this on numerous occasions that he like he'll read my article and then he'll read some of the comments below it, which, you know, you should never do except in, on my, on my site, he's like, some of these people who read you are better writers than you are, you know, and, and, uh and I think that's really cool. I think it's kind of true. I, I don't know that they're, you know, I hope they're, I hope I could hold my own, but I, I there, there are some really, really smart, interesting, funny people out there who follow me and, and uh they inspire me. They really do. And I, I think it's, a big reason that it's so fun for me is that, uh, is that I have, uh, this, this great audience of people that, uh, that, uh, you know, are there every day.
0: Yeah. I, I really love that. And, um, you know, I, I think it's really interesting too, because not that you talk about baseball exclusively, right. Um, but a big portion of your content, whether it's what, what you write about, now or what you talk about on the podcast is baseball related and we all know that baseball is struggling um especially for for younger viewers younger audiences and things like that but there's just this level of engagement that I mean, I'd be hard pressed to find anywhere else. It, and it's just, it's so like, I, i it just popped up in my um, podcast feed this morning that your latest podca- podcast, and I know you talk about basketball cards and this one and everything, but like, I look forward to those so much because like, I, I tried to listen to some other baseball podcasts and yeah, I think it's that, that Sarah Lang scale thing <laughs> that you and Mike <laughs> talked about, like you, you and Mike have that. And as a true baseball nerd, like I really appreciate that, and um, you know, I think that's something that stands out for you. Though, like growing up as a first-generation American, and like you said, learning the things the same same time as your parents. Like, when did it click for you that baseball was one of those things that you knew you were going to have a a really big passion for?
1: I, I was really young when I when I first really fell in love with baseball, and and it's and, and my father is the big reason. And I and it's it's interesting, and it's something when I talk to to other people who, whose parents, uh, you know, came to America just before they were born. Like, like with me, it was important to my father that I learned baseball. Like that was part of what it was to be an American. And, and he learned baseball so he could teach his son baseball like that. And that has always had a very, like, I, I remember reading once, um, uh about uh the Cleveland uh, baseball announcer Herb Score who was my the guy i grew up listening to and a great pitcher in his day before he got hit in the eye with a with a line drive and uh and Herb Score used to somebody said to him you know Herb you never explain to people um uh, why they brought the infield in or why is this a bunting situation like he when he would call the games he would he would avoid that kind of talk and they said, why do you do that? And he said, because that's something for a father to be telling his son while listening to the game. And that that really touched me because that was what it was like for me growing up. So, you know, the earliest memories I have are my, dad, my father pitching me wiffle balls. Uh, you know, we used to have home movies that we would watch. And that was, you know, most of the home movies were just my dad pitching me wiffle balls when I was a kid. And uh, it was... So I grew up with it. I grew up with it. And, you know, I, when I actually, you know, realized that I was, that baseball was going to be such a significant part of my life. I, I don't know. I wanted to be a baseball player, like every kid, you know, that I knew. And, and then as time went on and I started writing sports, uh, I gravitated toward baseball. It was the sport that, that I, I felt, uh, spoke to me the most. I think it was the one I always felt like I could offer a little something more. And, uh, and, you know, that's been obviously the case. I've just finished my fourth baseball book and it's, and it's called why we love baseball. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's definitely, um, it's definitely been a huge, huge part of my life, but it definitely started very young and it started with my father.
0: So sticking with baseball then Joe, um, I know the Negro Leagues is also very important to you, and you've done a lot of work um, with Bob Ken- Kendrick and uh, the Negro League Hall of Fame. Um, you know why is it so important, you think, to the history of baseball that the stories from this li- from that league that they don't get forgotten?
1: Yeah, I, well, it's just such a vibrant, colorful, wonderful part of the history of the game, and for years and years and years it was ignored um actively ignored and i you know you can understand why it's a it's shameful that there needed to be a, a negro leagues it's shameful that uh these incredible players uh never got to play and we never got to see them i mean there's a there's a real tragic element to that and i think for years that's Part of the reason why nobody wanted to talk about it, you know, it's like it's just. I, I think in the African American community, it was like, hey, that's a part of our past. We don't need to go back and revisit that. For the white community, it was like, ah, eh, what, whatever, it, you know, it doesn't matter that that they, they, you know, the, we we never saw them play, and and so I think for years and years it it was completely ignored. And look, for me, the connection directly goes back to to my friend Buck O'Neill. I mean, I I had a an interest certainly in in the the stories of the negro leagues you know before i met buck uh but it was it was the same interest that i had in in a lot of other things um and it was getting to know buck uh becoming friends with buck writing a book about buck and 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 uh traveling the country with buck that that sort of opened my my eyes and, and heart to this whole story in a completely different way and and now obviously it's you know incredibly important to me and and you know one of the one of the major things in my life is is the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City and uh, my my friend and brother Bob Kendrick and uh, so th- so that's all been something that has evolved uh, over time and and now it's a it's a different thing i write a little bit about this in my book it's different because for years it was he listened to these stories and nobody wanted to listen to the stories. Now it's different because major league baseball has, has, uh, you know, acknowledged that, that the Negro leagues were major league. uh, And I think that, uh, you know, some things have, have happened. Incredible um, research has been done. And, and so it's a lot different. And I think everybody is now aware of the Negro leagues and some of the great players in the Negro leagues. uh, But, it's it's still it's still a story that I think is so often misunderstood and misrepresented and and uh so I, I think it's as important as ever, especially as as you know the game looks to the future, it's as important as, as ever to to acknowledge that this is this is a a, a there's a piece of the Negro leagues that uh the, there's the tragic piece we've talked about but there's also a piece of the Negro Leagues that was this joyful baseball that that was that really expressed how this game is the true national pastime it's the true sport across race across uh gender across everything that we we lose sometimes and and so i think that the story is more important than ever
0: in the midst of all the projects that you're working on. I'm not sure if you've gotten a chance yet, but um, have you watched the William Mays documentary on HBO?
1: I did. I actually had uh, the director uh, and, uh, and Colin Hanks though, who produced it. Uh, We had him on, uh, on the podcast. I really liked it a lot. Uh, That's a hard doc. I told Colin this Uh, Colin, you know, like he's, he's my, one of my best friends now. Uh, But I told him uh, that, it's hard because Willie Mays was, is a tough character. And especially as he's gotten older, I mean, he's, he's, he's dealing with a lot of health issues and he's, he's not a sentimental guy. Like, that's not like, like with, when you could talk to Henry Aaron, you know, that you could, you could really, you know, sense the warmth uh, of him. And, And it's harder with Willie Mays uh and so i thought they did a great job of of i wouldn't say humanizing him it's not that he's not anything less than 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 this this human person but i think they 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 did a great job of getting at the heart of of this incredible incredible athlete and incredible man and uh and i think that was very i think it's very difficult to do i mean he was look he you know this he was number 1 on my, in the, my baseball 100, I think he's the greatest ball player who ever lived. Uh, I think that he uh, is someone that didn't, uh, he was never impressed with himself. So I think that always came across that, you know, other people were impressed, but he wasn't. And, and he was distant at times and aloof at times. And uh, so I think it makes it difficult. It's there's, there's not the same, level of warmth, I think, that we feel for some of the other incredible players uh, in baseball history. So I I really like the way the documentary was able to get somewhat at the heart of, uh, of this incredible figure.
0: Sure, yeah, and and I don't know if you remember this particular um, comment in the documentary. Um, also, before I get to the comment, I'm definitely going to uh, take the audio of when you said Colin was your best friend. And I know you were talking about a different Colin, but I'm going to use that for myself, <laughs> <Sure, laughs> make it my <sure>. ringtone. <laughs> um, but there's a, there was a historian um, that they were interviewing in documentary, and um, he had said something along the lines that uh, true integration. Would have been adding the Negro League teams to Major League Baseball, like right. kind of like the ABA merger and the the NFL and whatever the the AFL, other yeah. Um, yeah AFL yeah uh, league was, and then you would have had black ownership in baseball. And instead, what it really turned out to be was just a poaching of all those best players. Like, That's right, you know, Hank and Willie and uh, a ton of others, and it really just crushed the foundation, you know, of of that league. Um, I'd never thought about it before until I had heard that uh, comment, like, you know, should we be talking about, I guess, I guess the question is like, you know, we major league baseball, they rightfully so make a pretty big deal out of Jackie Robinson and Jackie Robinson day and, you know, things like that. But are we doing a disservice by not telling some of these other stories or being like more accurate with our storytelling? Um, Like, do you think we should push these narratives a little bit harder?
1: Well, it it just so happens that you really crossed into one of my uh, uh, very big themes in, in my upcoming book. Um, so, you know, the book is the countdown of the 50 most magical moments in baseball history. And they're actually, I can tell you, there are more than 50 moments in the book. They're actually 108 moments in the book, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, <laughs> obviously, I don't think I'm spoiling anything to tell people. Jackie Robinson's uh, first day in the major leagues is is one of the moments in the book um but i don't write only about that moment uh every moment in the book i have a date on there and and for the jackie robinson uh chapter i've got six or seven dates on the top because i have the date that jackie robinson you know april 15th 1947 but i also have july 5th 1947 which was the day larry doby uh, uh you know Became the first uh, American league uh, African American to play. And then I have uh, the date that uh, um, uh, the first black pitcher. Uh, played and i had the date that minnie minoso became the first dark skin latino to play in the major leagues uh or in chicago actually specifically uh and then i had the day that the yankees finally integrated and i had the day that buck o'neill finally became the first black coach and i have the day that frank robinson finally became the first black manager it's been a long journey and i think in some ways um we even diminished Jackie Robinson by making him the the beginning and the end of the story. He knew he wasn't the end of the story. I mean, he spent the last decade of his life uh, pushing for a a black manager. And, and it's, it's, I I do think that there are numerous themes. I mean, you mentioned the idea of, of uh, incorporating a black team into, into baseball rather than, uh, you know, just, just incorporating the Kansas city monarchs. It was never even considered at the time. Obviously, I mean Jackie Robinson himself was such a reach, and and you know was such a a difficult thing to to make happen. But there's no question that the the greatness of Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby and and you know all of the other early ones, Willard Brown and 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 everybody in 1947. It was the end of the Negro Leagues. It was the end of this very vibrant business in 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 black communities across the country, and um, and so yeah. So there's a there's a very sad element of that. I, I think it's part of the story for sure, and and should not be forgotten. And I I think in general, I think the the simplification of of the way baseball integrated uh, has, has not served anybody well. And, and including, and I include Jackie Robinson in that I, I just think, I just think Jackie Robinson knew that he was the start of this long, not struggle and fight, but also this long journey that we are still on. I mean, you know, you look at last year, last year, this past season, uh, we had the first world series since 1950, without an African-American player in it. I mean, that's, that just tells you that, you know, it's a, it's a constant journey. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't think that's going to, that's going to change anytime soon.
0: Sure. Well, I appreciate you sharing that and definitely looking forward to reading more about all of those moments and everything um, and why we love baseball. Uh, I have one more topic for you and then I have some quick hitters uh, before I let you go today joe uh is, i'm making it my goal every single time i talk to you to talk about one of your books last time we talked about the baseball 100 because that had just come out i'd love to talk about paterno today you can see my my rose bowl uh champ sure. <laughs> hat on here. um and i i'd like to my first question around uh that book is just how how do you get selected you know to write something like that because um yeah, I, I guess I'll just stick with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I I don't think you do get selected. Um, I, that was, you know, that has been uh, going back to revisit the the whole Paterno saga. Uh, that was one of the most difficult uh, and challenging, and and uh, times, and also a, the, a time where I I have incredible pride for for what. What happened? What I did in that? You know, I'm very, very proud of that book. I, I took a lot of criticism uh, for that book, and continue to still. I still get criticized, uh, but I, I it doesn't matter because I know uh, how good that book is, and and I'm and I'm incredibly proud of it. Uh, I wrote a story about Joe Paterno for Sports Illustrated uh, in 2009, maybe. And his family really, really liked it, and I. They asked me, would I ever have any interest in writing a book about Joe? And they, I think everybody knew that you know his his career was finally coming to an end, and I, I think everybody kind of knew 2011 was going to be his last season. Uh, it obviously turned out to be his last season, but I didn't think that anybody thought it was going to end that way. Um, so everybody kind of knew that, and so they. They wanted to know if I'd be interested in writing a book, and Joe was. Joe himself was not that thrilled with the whole idea, as you might imagine, and and I didn't know uh, how I felt about it either. Uh, you know, I didn't. I was not a Penn State guy. I I didn't know Joe Paterno any more than than anyone else. I I you know had just written that one story about him uh, for Sports Illustrated. Um, but I was fascinated. I was utterly fascinated by him. I was fascinated by the life he'd led uh, you know, all of these things that now have been overshadowed, but you know, the, the guy was sportsman of the year. He was, he was the grand experiment. He was, he, you know, he'd been at the same place for 50 years uh, and, and had built up this reputation, not only as a great football coach, but as a leader of men and, and uh, you know, as the, percentage of graduates of his classes are, are, you know, off the charts and, and so on and so on and so on and so on. And of course there are all the other problems, you know, the later, the, some of the legal issues, uh, some of his players went through and, and, you know, him continuing on, you know, well past when most people thought he should. And so there was, there was a lot there. And I thought this is, this is a really, really good book. The only thing I need, uh, them to tell me is that it's my book. I don't want to do a book with Joe Paterno. Uh, and I don't want to do a book. I mean, I want to talk to all of them. I want all of them to be a part of it, but it had to be my book. And, uh, and so we went through that, uh, for a while. And finally, uh, Joe agreed to, to, to let me do it and, and said he would, he would, uh, talk to me after the season and, uh, and I moved up to state college actually, uh, to, to write the book. And then of course, uh, I was, I was going along, writing the book, talking to all of the people around him, getting all the good and bad and everything else that was Joe Paterno. Um, and, uh, and then of course the, the Sandusky, uh, thing happened, uh, right in the middle of it. And, uh, suddenly I had a very different book and a very different, uh, thing, to do. And, and, uh, and
0: you know, it led to where it led. So had you actually, well, first I I think it's so cool that from one piece, yeah, I think, I think it just speaks to again, like work ethic and just showing up and doing, doing the best job you can one piece got you, got you the in (laughs) with the paternos (laughs) to, to write the book. Um, I think that's really cool. Um, Had you even started writing before November fifth, two thousand eleven, or were you still like in the process of interviewing people and and just kind of putting together your thoughts for the book?
1: Yeah, I was still. I had not written anything. I was still very much in the in the gathering process. I knew, you know, I wasn't really going to spend a lot of time with Joe uh, himself until after the season was over. I mean, that was a big. That was a big part of it. He's like, "Don't bother me during the season <laughs> and uh so I had talked to all I mean I had spent hours countless hours with his family uh with his sons, with his daughters, um you know with his wife with with the uh, you know with people around there who knew him, with people in the community, and then of course with many 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 of his former players. So I had been gathering for a long time, well, for a few months. And I had a ton. I mean, I just had a lot of, of stuff. Um, but I was not, I had not written and I don't know that I even had started thinking about how I wanted to order the book when it happened. I, 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 I think I was still in that process of, you know, is it going to be chronological? Is it going to be, am I going to start here? And and I wanted to see how that season was going to turn out because that season was going in interesting directions um so i i really had not and then of course november 5th happened i was actually supposed to be going to see um john capaletti uh i was literally i think that monday so the 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 uh you know indictment or whatever uh came down from the from the office uh on uh, november 5th which was a saturday and then on monday i was supposed to be going out to la to spend some time with john capaletti and uh, obviously uh, that didn't happen. And, and I stayed there and stayed college and the next week was obviously explosive. And, and uh, you know, I think Joe was, was defiant. He wasn't going to quit. And then the board fired him uh, by, by a uh, letter, you know, by courier essentially. Uh, and then at the end of the week after he had been fired uh, he found out he had cancer i mean like it was it was an incredibly uh it's a week i'll never forget obviously and and so then you know all of this my mind is completely scrambled everything that i've done is kind of like i know it's going to get into the book somehow but i don't know in what way it all felt a little bit useless and and now i was just sort of uh on the wave, you know, just trying to hold on for dear life as, uh, as the wave came crashing down. And of course, uh, I spent some time with Joe over the next, you know, few weeks, but he was very sick. Uh, and then he died in January and, and, uh, I was left with a, with a, a scandal and a book to write and a life to try to be somewhat, you know, as, 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 and that's the thing I used to think about every day. I would look myself in the mirror and I'd say, you know, you have a, the, you have a little responsibility here and your responsibility is not just to tell the story of the scandal your your responsibility the reason you got this writing this book is you're talking about a life you're telling the story of a full life and uh and i you know that was that was what i tried to do and that was uh you know as as hard as anything as uh, that i suspect i'll ever have to do
0: sure definitely can't predict a moment like that um did you do you feel like uh maybe you were thinking about it in the moment or whatever. I was with a buddy at a bar cuz it was a Saturday like you said and we saw it pop up on a screen. At the at that point I had to be 22, 23 years old. I vaguely remembered who Jerry Sandusky was. Right. Um didn't didn't totally register. And you know it's a Saturday night, Sunday comes around, it's pretty quiet. Monday, bam, it like yeah is a wildfire just just out of control but and then like you said by Wednesday he's fired by the board so it's not even a full week that you know everything everything happens um did you like on when was the moment where you were like oh this this is gonna get a little crazy like did, did you have that moment or
1: and look as soon as the indictment came down as soon as the papers came down um I, I realized that something I, and here's the thing I should say I knew that that I knew about the Sandusky scandal. I knew that there was, you know, I did not know about the connection to Joe, right. I knew about the Sandusky thing. I knew that, that Joe had, you know, look, he was, he, he worked, he was Joe's defensive coordinator. So, so uh, there might be some vague uh, connections. And when the, when the, uh, you know, that Saturday, when the indictment came down, the, uh, uh, attorney general's office um, basically cleared him. I mean, they basically said like, Hey, this is not a, about Joe Paterno. This is about Jerry Sandusky and blah, blah, blah. And then as people started making more and more connections, people started saying, well, wait, did Joe do enough to to stop this from happening? And then suddenly you had some people who were pretty opinionated about it uh, in the, in the, you know, police uh, departments and, you know, people came out and basically said that Joe had, had you know, not done enough to stop it. And, and then, of course, you know, conspiracy theories start coming out that Joe actually had something to do with it and this and that and the other. And after a while, it became where you couldn't – it stopped being a Jerry Sandusky scandal and it started being a Joe Paterno scandal. Yeah. Uh, and look, he – there was a lot involved in that, including the fact that Joe, in my view – uh Shouldn't have been coaching anymore. I mean, he like, he should have he should have stepped down already. He was he was in his seventies, and and there was just no reason. Like he don't, he'd done everything he needed to do, but but you know there there was there was a lot of good in in Joe Paterno, a lot, but there was also this I think fatal flaw of of really being unable to let go, and I think that that it put him in situations where things got away from him including the sandusky scandal and uh and so it it uh, it started to become about that it started to become about that and then of course lots of he made lots of enemies through the years and you know he was very uh, he was very pious, right? He was very much uh, a guy that that didn't mind saying that other people didn't live up to uh, to their to their standards, right? And so a lot of people were more than happy to to see him go down, and, and it got ugly, and and then of course I, you know, as a writer in the middle of it, I kind of, you know, people started you know questioning me, and 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 so that got a little bit tougher, and I, I had to figure out a way to write the book the way I believe it should be written knowing full well that after I wrote the book, there would be plenty of people who would say, you know, that I was an apologist for him or I was this or that. And I, and I tried not to worry about it. I mean, I just don't know what you can do. I knew once the scandal had become clear and once Joe had gotten sick, I knew no matter how I wrote the book, people were going to hate it, at least, at least a, a huge percentage of people. And you know, that's, that's that's no fun. That's you never you never write a book uh with the hopes that oh I hope a whole bunch of people hate it, you know. I mean that's not <laughs> exactly the dream, uh, but I knew it. And so that book became something more than you know, like like now, of course. I mean, I'm I've got why we love baseball coming out, and I can't wait. I can't wait for it to come out, I can't wait for people to see it. And that one was much more like a all right, I I have a responsibility here, and a responsibility to to do something, uh, to write this book exactly how I believe it should be written, to tell the truth as I see it, and uh, let the chips fall. But that's not that's not the same level of excitement that you feel about writing uh, other books, for sure. Sure,
0: yeah, I can't even imagine. Uh, I will say, as objective as I can be, if someone grew up at Penn State or went to Penn State. Um, you know, was there through the Paterno years. I feel like it was a fair uh, description of, of who he was and I was really appreciative. And I mean, it was just a thrill. Um, I want to ask you because it's been, you know, 12 years since then, this is the last question on this. And then we can do the quick hitters to finish this up. Um, You wrote a particularly striking um, section toward the, the end of the book here about a conversation that you had with Joe um, after everything that happened. And, um, it says we were sitting at Joe Paterno's table, me and him alone. And he asked me to stop questioning for a moment. This was a couple of weeks after he had been fired when the madness was at its height, he had just been through a dreadful coughing fit and his face was still red from the effort. He asked me, so what do you think of all this? I told him that it was crazy, but that's not what he was asking. (laughs) I thought that line was brilliant. Um, and he said, what do you think of all this? He asked me again, I had not intended to cl- include this in the book. It was personal moment. It was a personal moment between writer and subject. But as the story has played out, I decided it was important. I told him that I think that I thought he should have done more when he was told about Jerry Sandusky showering with a boy. I had heard what he had said about not understanding the severity, not knowing much about child molestation, not having Sandusky as an employee. But I said, "You are Joe Paterno. Right or wrong, people expect more from you." He nodded. He did not try to defend or deflect. He simply said, I wish I had done more again. And then he descended into another coughing fit. I just think about, you know, I think about like a, a dark, you know, night at that kitchen table, probably uh, where, where you spent um, a lot of time. And, and obviously, he's really struggling from a health perspective and mentally, I'm sure he's struggling from everything that happened. Um, do you still feel? that way you know when, when he asked you to really answer the question and you told him what you think like is that still your your belief 12 years later or is time like made you think differently about the situation um
1: um it's a good question i i honestly have not like i've not revisited that scene very much since since it happened you know he was he was very sick. I I I believed then and believe now that Joe Paterno did not knowingly do anything to encourage Jerry Sandusky's crimes. I I I feel that strongly. I it just it's it goes against every single thing the man represented. But I think what I was saying to him then is what I said to you. Earlier. And, and I think the, he, he wouldn't stop. He wouldn't let go. And he wouldn't acknowledge that the, as he got older, he was diminished in various ways, you know, and, and it just, it happens to all of us. And, and I think what he was, what he was asking me was, you know, hey, what do you think? How do you think I did? You know, I mean, that's, that's how I took the question. How do you think I did? And I could have said to him, I really could have like, look, I don't think that you did anything knowingly uh, wrong here. I think you were as fooled as everybody else in the entire community. uh, And I think that you were not focused on it. I think you're, you know, you were focused on other things. And, and, you know, that's just, that's, that's, I think how most people are and nobody wants to know that nobody, everybody wants to believe they're the hero of the story, but if something's happened next door to you and you sort of have a sense, maybe how many people are going to step in and do something. It's, it's just, it's a rare, rare quality. But what I told him and what I believed was that Joe Paterno supposed to live up to the highest ideals that was the whole point of joe paterno's life was that he was to live up he was the guy who if the neighbor was 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 doing something he was the guy that should step up and stop it because that's what he lived that's what he preached that's what he represented so that's what i told him and i i agree with that part of it i i think it's i think it's shameful the way that his life was, was completely obliterated uh, all of his achievements, all of the good things he did, all of it were just completely forgotten. And you say the name Joe Paterno now, and it doesn't mean the same thing, except to Penn state fans. So I think still hold on and, and rightfully so. Um, I think it's a shame. I think it's, I think it's a tragedy. And I think people who always, you know, what I'll get all the time are, People who will say, "Oh, you know, it's 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 a fall, just like Bill Cosby or just like somebody like that," and I'm no, <clears throat> there's nothing. Bill Cosby committed his own crimes. You know, yeah. nobody nobody believes that Joe Paterno committed any of these crimes. the 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 question was, did Joe Paterno live up to our highest ideals? And I think the answer is he did not. And I think he acknowledged that he did not. And and that's. You know, he, he he had to live with it and, and the punishment was swift. Uh, but but I think that that at the end of the day, Joe Paterno lived a a life uh that is uh pretty admirable leading up to to the way it ended. And and I don't think that all of those years and all of those lessons should be just completely washed away. I think I started the book off by saying that Joe Paterno was uh has been called a, a devil and an angel and a and a sinner and a and a saint and a and all of these things and I think that's right. I think he lived a very complicated life but it was uh but it was a full life and and that's what I tried to capture I think in the book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you for sharing. And my two cents is that book stands up with any of your other ones, given the challenges and, um, you know, just the public perception around the name these days. So definitely if, if anyone's interested, take a, take a dive into that one as well. Um, all right, Joe, some quick hitters, uh, to have a little fun, uh, finish things off here. Um, what are, what are one or two things you would say that you are most excited about for the future of baseball?
1: I'm really excited about the rule changes this year. I am really I just wrote about them for Esquire, it's coming out next month. Uh I'm really excited about them. Uh, I'm excited about the pitch clock. I I I think it will definitely quicken the pace and shorten the game, which is obviously its point. I am kind of hopeful that it does even more than that, that it it sort of makes uh pitchers not go max effort on every pitch the way they are now. And, and maybe, maybe strikeouts go down just a little bit. And maybe hitters uh, are a little bit more active. And uh, I don't know. I mean, so I'm really excited about that. I'm even a little bit excited about the the rule that uh, there will be no shifting. Now I I've had mixed feelings about the no shifting uh, for, for a long time now uh, in part, because it's shifting has always been a big part of the game but in part because I just didn't know or think that that changing the rule would, would affect much, you know, I mean, I I, guys like Joe Sheehan, who I respect a lot uh, believe that it's going to make things worse because it's going to really encourage uh, hitters, particularly left-handed hitters to pull the ball all the time uh, now that there's no, you know, fourth outfielder or whatever. Um, But I, I kind of, I'm kind of excited about it. And I, and I think the reason is, I think it's going to look a lot more like baseball the way we used to remember it. And, you know, I don't know what that's going to mean, what are going to be the, the consequences, what are going to be the benefits. I don't know the answer to any of those questions yet, but I like the idea that second baseman is going to be standing where second baseman stand and shortstops are going to be standing where shortstops tended to stand. And you know, look, they'll pinch the middle and, and it'll be, you know, we'll, we'll, it's not like it's going to be this extreme thing, but I don't know anybody who liked it where a left-handed hitter hit a line drive into the outfielder. And then the second baseman caught it (laughs) because he was just standing out there. You know, that's just, it's smart. It's smart baseball. I don't blame any team for shifting, but i'm i'm interested and excited to see what it's going to look like without
0: that sure sure. the one that would drive me the craziest is the line drive or the the ground ball hard ground ball up the middle oh, yeah. and uh, the guys yeah. just standing there
1: yeah. yeah and i don't know how much of this shifting is going to change that because literally shortstops are going to be able to stand you know right almost right to the right right behind second base yeah. yeah so it'll still be only one or two steps but but even that it's one or two steps i mean i i think the when you saw a guy just standing there and fielding a ground ball when you're just ripped up the middle, you thought, okay, well, great. So their, their analytics team is good. That doesn't mean that's not fun. Baseball, not rooting for analytics teams. I, I, I appreciate them, admire them. I like them. I like talking to them, but I don't want them controlling the game. I want baseball players to be controlling the game. So, uh, so I'm a little bit excited about, about what these rule changes are going to do.
0: Sure. All right. Two quick hitters left. My buddies and I were talking about this. The only time in franchise history that this team has been any good is when we were were kids, except for this past year, because they made the playoffs. But do you think the Seattle Mariners, <laughs> do you think they win a World Series sometime in the next 10 years? Yes or no?
1: Um. <sighs> I mean, no, but, but I, they might, they might look, I th- not to get back to my book, but we'll get back to my book. Uh, I was, you know, there's so many moments. I mean, I'm, when you're talking about 50 most magical moments, you are leaving out so many moments and I went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth about whether or not to include double uh, mm-hmm. in, in the book. And that's the, the Edgar Martinez double that scored Ken Griffey Jr. all the way from first against the Yankees to win the uh, 95 ALCS. And there are so many other moments that are not in the book that were probably every bit as magical and important as that moment, but it's all the Mariners have. (laughs) It's all they've got. And I just, I feel so bad for a group of fans that like, like they have, they've never been to the world series. They're the only team that has never been to the world series. I mean, like the rays have been the world series and the Rockies have been to the world series so I I I I to to give it away, I did include it in the book because I just I just feel like it's this moment for this team and and I would love to see them win a World Series and I love some of the things they're doing. I love Julio, uh Rodriguez, and and I just uh I'm I'm we'll see. It's gonna be tough for them to win a World Series though.
0: Yeah, how how crazy is that one moment to say like it's it's kind of sad that it's like their only moment, but at the yeah. same time, it saved baseball. It, did, in it Seattle. did. It saved
1: baseball in the city. It's true.
0: <laughs> Very cool. All right. Last thing I want to show you. I made this specially for you. Uh, so, on the first episode that you and Mike opened up cards on the podcast, I don't know if you remember this, but you you found a Chuck Navlak card. Sure. And you started for you know a minute or two talking about how Chuck Knoblock would would be a perfect candidate for the raffle uh, to get a a baseball 100 style uh, typewritten letter uh, to whoever wins that. I want you to know that you were literally talking about me and so oh, I, I put this <laughs> I put this collage together. i I counted up total. I have thirty four total cards uh two two autographs of knoblock. Um most of these that you can see in the collage are, are knoblock. You can see in the autograph section that I have a, a few other um random players here and there. But I, I was like if if Joe doesn't get anybody who selects <laughs> Chuck Knobloch in the raffle, I was like, I want him to remember this and I want him to, to write me because I would love a Chuck Knobloch typewritten essay. Chuck,
1: Chuck Knobloch was a good player, man. You know this. He was a really, really good player. I I always thought of Chuck Knobloch that it, his, his career gone a little bit differently. Obviously, he had the throwing yips later and everything else that went on. Uh, the guy was Craig Biggio. I mean, he was basically yeah. the same guy. And and uh, so, yeah, Chuck Knobloch, heck of a player. I, I love seeing the Chuck Knobloch with the Royals uh, card because <laughs> yep. uh, that was uh, that was not the best version of Chuck Knobloch at that point.
0: No, no, it was not. Although I, I think I vaguely remember. Um, so that would have been 2002 uh, was was his final year. And uh, still a huge Knobloch fan at the, at this point, um, even though his career had totally tailspin. But spun by that point, um, I'm pretty. I, sh- I should have looked for this, but I I have the picture from the um what was the paper called Post Standard in Syracuse, New York, sure. uh, where where I grew up, and Knobloch made the front cover because he had probably his best game of the season against the Yankees um you know when the Royals were just awful and and a terrible (laughs) franchise and everything and I was just so like the only time I've ever actively rooted against the Yankees just to say like (laughs) oh my god I want Chuck Novak to do well because I I just freaking loved him and and everything so um (laughs) it's very cool well Joe this has been such a pleasure. Uh, so so great um, to, to get to reconnect with you. And I'm definitely looking forward to the book that's coming out. And I'll just reiterate to anyone who's listening to this, check out Joe Blogs, uh, Joe Substack. I wait for that on pins and needles every day, just like I, I, I wait for the podcast episodes. It's definitely worth uh, the time and the investment uh, to support an independent uh, writer like Joe. So I uh, just really appreciate you taking the time, Joe, and, and definitely hope we can um, continue to build a, a relationship here. Maybe Maybe one day we'll meet since we're both in Charlotte.
1: Might <laughs> happen. Absolutely. No, thank you. Thanks a lot.